Before we start the show, just a little shout out for Robert from Autograph Loft and a very special item he has to sell. Now, we've mentioned Robert before. He's my autograph dealer and has obtained many special items for me over the years. Robert is an Aftal member, so you know you can buy from him with confidence. The reason I am mentioning him today is because there is an amazing piece for sale on his website. One sadly a little out of my price range, otherwise it would now be hanging on my wall. It's a wonderful Casablanca display, which includes within it genuine autographs from Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. We have a link to this incredible item in our show notes. Take a look and be amazed. While you're on the Autograph Loft site, have a look at some of the other beautifully framed autographs on display. You will not be disappointed. And if you do buy the Casablanca display, I will not be jealous. Much. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Hello from your At The Flicks team. You are about to listen to part one of our Year Start show, which was originally designed to just be one podcast. However, we had so much content for you, we simply couldn't put it all into one episode. So, we did a Salkins. All for one and one for all. And split the show into two. Luckily, we find a natural break so that we don't end on a cliffhanger. I will now hand over to Jeff, who will now introduce the more sombre half of the show. Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Graham. Hi, my name is Neil. I'm Phil, and when I'm not on At The Flicks, you can find more about my film tastes via my blog page on philforbearblog at wordpress.com. Hi, I'm Darren, and other than at the flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at Desert Loves Movie, and you can read my blogs at halfguarded.com. For part one of the Year Start show, we talk about some of the film industry people who passed in 2022 and what they meant to the At the Flicks team. The saddest part of being a film buff is seeing the annual long list of industry names who have passed away. Some of these people are household names, many aren't. The comfort we, as movie watchers, have is the knowledge that their work is preserved for future generations to see. For our roll call this year, we have picked five names which have had an impact on each of our film-going lives. Each person will talk about the individual they selected and why that loss means something to them. Sadly, as the choice was so large this year, we will also include a brief roll call for other people who enriched our lives with their talent. This is not meant in any way to diminish the achievements of anyone else who has passed on in 2022. They may not be mentioned, however, they are certainly not forgotten. Let's talk about the first of the five people we are eulogising. Philip Baker Hall, 1931 to June 2022. I'm glad you asked that. I say now is the time to roll up our shirt sleeves and get to the bottom of this. Philip Baker Hall was one of those actors who came to the profession late in life, after careers in both the army and teaching. In fact, he was 31 when he made his first film, Love in 72, although the less said about that, the better. 
After that inauspicious start, it seems Philip was reluctant to turn any work down, appearing in many blink-and-you're-missing roles in a multitude of TV series and films whilst developing a solid theatre career with the Los Angeles Theatre Centre. In total, he made over 180 appearances in TV and film, from MASH the series to Cheers and Ghostbusters 2 to The Rock. However, it is thanks to two directors, Mr. Baker Hall will be remembered for his most powerful performances. The first is Robert Altman, for whom he starred in Secret Honour in 1984. The movie was a recreation of Philip's one-man stage show in which he acted as disgraced President Richard Nixon. Baker Hall is electrifying in the movie, shot on a shoestring budget in which he rages against the world. As it turns out, Secret Honour became one of the favourite films of the other director who was to have such an impact on his acting life. Paul Thomas Anderson hired him for three of his best performances, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Even though Philip Bakehall continued to work almost non-stop until 2020, the roles he played in the 21st century were of a significant higher quality than prior to his work with PTA. These include the Oscar-winning Argo and the highly acclaimed TV series The Newsroom. He was an actor who lived life to the full and, according to many who worked with him, a true gentleman, one of the great character actors. Some of his other great films are Midnight Run, 1988, The Insider, 1999, The Contender, 2000, and Zodiac, 2007. For me personally, Philip Baker Hall is inextricably linked to Paul Thomas Anderson. In 1993, they made a short film called Cigarettes and Coffee. And if you check out YouTube, you can find it there in full. It runs just shy of 24 minutes, so it doesn't take too long to watch. That short became a success at Sundance, and it would become the basis for PTA's career feature debut, Hard Eight a film that PTA wanted to call Sydney, based on Baker Hall's character. A fight he lost in the end, but it's no doubt that the star and driving force behind the success of that film is Philip Baker Hall. You may or may not be aware that Baker Hall's character in Midnight Run was also named Sydney, also originated from Vegas and always wore full suits. Unofficially or not, Hard Eight may have been giving us the return of a favourite character of PTAs. Baker Hall would then, of course, go on to play integral characters in Boogie Nights and Magnolia, and it's the latter which I think is his greatest performance, and the one that helped introduce me personally to Paul Thomas Anderson. Jimmy Gator is a quiz show host with terminal cancer who has committed horrific acts of hatred to his family, yet Baker Hall manages to give him a level of gravitas whilst also allowing us to hate him as much as he needs to be. Wow. Okay. Mm. Solid character actor. I still remember him in Secret Honour. I mean, he didn't look like Nixon, but my God, that performance. And just him on screen that whole time. It was just in your face and, and just incredible. I don't know what you think, Phil, but a lot of these roles, he, he had a level of authority and you always believed him. You know, whether he could be like the politician in Some of All Fears or the priest in the Amityville Horror remake, he was never less than convincing. For me, he always felt like somebody who would have fitted in like Humphrey Bogart's era. He always felt like that kind of, you know, he's from that generation 
and he always seemed to have a stature in all the films that I watched him in, his character, whether he was good, bad or indifferent, the stature that he gave that character was always just immense. That's a good, yeah, good call. I, like you, Jeff, just loved him playing Nixon. And again, that's the gravitas thing, isn't it? He just, he felt like Nixon completely out of control, losing it. But but winding himself up, it was just a, a masterclass, an absolute yeah. masterclass. And his yeah. body of work is huge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. His body of work is immense. It's yeah. phenomenal. What about you, Darren? Any standout performances for you? You, you look at his face and, and his, his voice and everything, and he just comes across that if you ever wanted to have a senator in your TV show or if you wanted to have a, yeah. a grizzled newspaper editor... Mm. He's the sort of person yeah. that you would call, or or, or a major yeah. in the military like he was in in Mash. He just looks so authentic. He just looks the part. So, to you know, grizzle type actor. I do like the fact that he came into this late in life. He honed his skills, TV, film, theatre, did the lot. Wasn't afraid of anything. Good choice, Phil. And he had a full life, but yeah, still a sad loss. As I said inextricably linked with Paul Thomas Anderson. I think that you know, there's lots of really great films we mentioned there, but if you watch Hard Eight or Magnolia, I think you just get to see a master of the craft, regardless of how late he came to it. We now go from one veteran performer to a veteran illustrator and screenwriter, Raymond Briggs, 1934 to August 2022. You said, oh, I greatly admire your work, and I said, God, uh, wish I could say the same. Like Mr Hall, Raymond Briggs came to TV and cinema late in life. He was approaching 50 when The Snowman was first broadcast on Channel 4. He graduated art college after national service to become an illustrator for other people's books. After personal tragedy in the early 1970s, Mr Briggs threw himself into his vocation and created his own illustrated works. First came Father Christmas and its sequel, Father Christmas Goes on Holiday, which depicted a rather miserable interpretation of the great man, his famous phrase being, oh, damn snow. However, his greatest triumph was to come at the end of the decade when he created the wonderfully entertaining and heartbreaking The Snowman. Shortly after its publication, he was contacted by producer John Coates, who wanted to turn it into a, an animated short film. The result, first shown on Channel 4 during Christmas 1982, was an instant success. It has become an annual favourite for the channel, who show it every year, except strangely in 1984. And it was almost a short film which accompanied E.T. on its initial cinema release. Steven Spielberg stopped that because of the similarity to his movie. You could say that Channel 4's Christmas depends on Raymond Briggs. And over the years, he has worked with production companies to develop short films of Father Christmas, The Bear, and the inevitable sequel, The Snowman and the Snowdog. All big hits with the snowman also transferring successfully to the stage. However, it would be wrong to think of Briggs as just a children's storyteller. He also wrote the script for When the Wind Blows, a terrifying vision of a world destroyed in a nuclear war. Following this, Mr Briggs became politically active and was a supporter of the Labour Party, 
until Jeremy Corbyn took over. Politics aside, it's Christmas we think of when Raymond Briggs's name is mentioned, and that is a wonderful and lasting legacy. Other films of note, Fungus the Bogeyman, 2004, and Ethel and Ernest in 2016. So for me, watching The Snowman with my kids when they were small really epitomised the British family Christmas. Just like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, The Snowman's a magical story which paints with colour and movement what Dickens did with words. My children were entranced, enchanted, and most of all, entertained by The Snowman. The unique story with the heart-wrenching ending was a departure from the usual sugar-coated fare we get at Christmas. I believe this film influenced a whole generation into an appreciation of the darker side of animation. Yes, we've all watched as Bambi's mum got the business end of the hunter's rifle, but that happened off screen. This film put the death of the snowman right in your face. I feel this 1982 classic led the way in a darker form of British animation. Briggs's stories of sorrow and loss, his betrayal of the gross and disgusting, and when I just say disgusting, I'm looking at you, Fungus the Bogeyman. Briggs also had a unique sense of Britishness with films like When the Wind Blows and the stunning and not often seen 1998 film The Bear, which I particularly like. In these films, the UK is front and centre, like the snowman, the bear doesn't have a spoken dialogue, although, of course, the American version has Judy Dench narrating the film. The musical score for this film was by Howard Blake, and the end theme, Somewhere a Star Shines for Everyone, was sung by Charlotte Church. Just a wonderful magical tale for maybe the evening of Boxing Day. Oh, and FYI, super dark, draw your own conclusions ending to the bear. Raymond Briggs whilst not by any stretch of the imagination is a giant in the movie world, was certainly an influence on many UK-based animation houses. Ardman Animation wrote a very respectful piece in The Guardian on Briggs's death, as did Three Miles Studio, who did the animation for Corpse Bride. Even animation studios like Leica, a company based in Oregon in the Pacific Northwest, who produced the wonderful Box Trolls and the superb Kubo and the Two Strings, praised Briggs as a major influence. For anyone who's not seen Box Trolls, by the way, it has one of the best post credit scenes in the history of animation. Just brilliantly funny. In conclusion, farewell, Mr. Briggs, and thank you for nudging animation to the dark side, for constantly replacing sugar and spice with poignant tales of sorrow and pathos. Your influence lives on. Very well said. I remember I watched The Snowman the very first year it came out, and uh, I was not expecting that ending. Oh, no. No, no. Hang on. This Christmas is supposed to be cheery. What the hell have you done, Channel 4? <laughs> it is a bit darker, isn't it? I mean, if you think what was going on in his life when he started, I mean, he'd lost both his parents and his wife, who was a schizophrenic, died of cancer the same year he produces Father Christmas. It's just like, wow. You know, he just buried himself in his work for literally the next five to ten years. I was just going to say, Where the Wind Blows is extraordinary. Um, I've got the graphic novel of it. It really is quite terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's, and, and so simply done. Yes. Yeah, very clever. Very clever man. So, Phil, you have young children. Have they seen The Snowman? What's the impact on them? 
Yeah, I'd love to tell you that they thought it was good, but maybe, maybe it's getting past its prime now because um, we watched it when they were ch- when they were younger and they were okay with it, but it's not looking good enough for them nowadays. Unfortunately, this Christmas just passed. My eldest was especially unimpressed with the animation. I do recall them enjoying it when they were actually, you know, you know, toddlers and what have you. So it is crazy to think that how many children across the country would have seen it and enjoyed it at, at a young age. That's an interesting point. Find somebody in Britain who's not seen The Snowman. I think you'd struggle. I think yeah. you would. I think you really would. That's that's really interesting. And the books, Darren, do they still sell well? Every Christmas when we put up as, yeah. uh, as Christmas displays, we always have to like, order in about 50 copies of the uh, snowman, and we always go. That particular one is still a massive seller. The thing I, I like about Raymond Briggs is you can see one of his characters and you know immediately who's drawn him because he's just got that yes, really yes. distinct style. Yeah. Um, the abiding memory I have from when I was a kid was uh, When the Wind Blows because I, I was about nine, when, uh, and this is before the film was ever made it, it was the uh, what went on to be called a graphic novel and I remember yeah. for some reason taking it home from from school our teacher at that time was a bit of a hippie he was quite subversive he used to sort of like you know <laughs> he sort of oh, it was always getting us to read stuff on that and, and teaching us like stuff about the, the atomic bomb test and stuff like that so I remember borrowing the when the wind blows and it, it starts off as, as quite sort of funny like you know, these two, these two old couple trying to sort of get to grips with the idea of a nuclear war, but it gets so tragic later. And the final page absolutely is heartbreaking. It's an amazing work, which is terrifying but really moving because I think it really brings you home what it would be like, and what the, you know, a nuclear war would mean for just like two regular normal people. It had nothing really to do with. It's an amazing piece of work. Um, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's so beautiful. It starts out with Jim, the guy, reading the newspaper and getting all the facts wrong, but in a, a very lovable and endearing way. So he spends the whole first half of the book and the film and the play, and you you really care, and they're like your grandparents. You think they're wonderful, and then it just slowly, everything starts to, 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 to fall away. And the other thing I liked about the film particularly was it was done in the style of a public information film. It had that look of a public, and it kept consulting uh, Protect and Survive, which in the UK was our uh, manual of how we were to survive a, a nuclear war. And you can see at the end of the film how well that worked. That manual was just nonsense. Yeah, yeah. so to dig out the book again. Going to have to have a read of it again. But ultimately, if you want to finish up, Graham, with something positive. Yes, yeah, there is a a wonderful documentary about the uh, the young female animators who actually made the snowman and how they were completely groundbreaking. It was an all female team. They at one stage they have Raymond Riggs coming in to have a look at it, and he sees the last panel and he went, "Yep, that's exactly what I wanted. Thank you." <laughs> and he was as happy as as Larry. He also saw them. They, the same team did the um, the snowman and the snow dog with a the the child's dog dies at the beginning and everybody went, oh, that's a bit grim. And they went, nope, that's what Raymond would have liked and true, did like it. 
So far, we have spoken about two people who lived long lives. Sadly, we next discuss a British performer whose life was impacted by illness and who died far too soon. Robbie Coltrane, 1950 to October 2022. Then Joe Rollins uh, said in an interview that she wanted me to play Hagrid. A big man in all senses of the phrase, he will probably be best remembered for two characters, one for TV, Cracker, and the other, Hagrid, in the Harry Potter movies. Initially, he wanted to be an artist, moving into acting in his early 20s. He started with small roles in such films as Flash Gordon and Krull. However, it is his TV comedy work that he's best remembered for during this period. Who can forget his roles in The Young Ones and as Samuel Johnson in Blackadder III? Robbie Coltrane's range started to become more apparent when he took more dramatic roles in such productions as Mona Lisa, as Bob Hoskins' best friend in 1986, and the BBC series Tutti Frutti. Eventually, this led to two starring roles in the movies Nuns on the Run, 1989, and The Pope Must Die, 1991. The titles changed to Pope Must Diet, so as not to offend Catholics. He also belongs to a small club of actors who have played the same supporting character in more than one James Bond film, Goldeneye, and The World is Not Enough. Around this time came the first of his two best-remembered characters, Cracker, a hard-drinking, antisocial and brilliant criminal psychologist. Mr Coltrane played the part created by Jimmy McGovern in 25 episodes. Everyone has their favourite, and who can forget that memorable confrontation with fellow Scottish actor Robert Carlyle? As a result of this portrayal, Robbie Coltrane was voted 11th in a 2006 poll of the 50 greatest TV characters of all time. After this came even more success with the character of Hagrid in the Harry Potter films. It was a part he loved and admitted to much regret when he filming on the last movie was completed. Sadly, in recent years, illness prevented Mr. Coltrane from taking on too many parts, although his performance in the excellent National Treasure in 2016 is a powerful swan song. That said, we will always have Cracker and Hagrid. Other films of note, The Supergrass in 1985, Henry V, 1989, From Hell in 2001, Ocean's 12 in 2004, and The Gruffalo in 2009. For me, as someone of a certain age, Robbie Coltrane featured in many of my and many others' favourite comedies. The new wave of comedians in the 1980s included programmes such as The Comic Strip Presents, Blackadder, The Young Ones and numerous other stand-up and sketch shows. And then Tutti Frutti came along. Six episodes of Robbie Coltrane Emma Thompson and Richard Wilson, and six BAFTAs, mainly in technical, but six BAFTAs. I believe it is on iPlayer, and Robbie Coltrane is brilliant. And of course, Cracker, all 25 episodes, is the stuff of legend. Robbie Coltrane got three consecutive BAFTAs for the best actor, matched only by Michael Gambon, Helen Mirren, and Julie Walters, a programme brilliantly written by Jimmy McGovern, as I've said before, but led by a special talent. Fitz, for those not in the know, is described in Wikipedia as alcoholic, a chain smoker, a beast, sedentary, addicted to gambling, manic, foul-mouthed and sarcastic, yet cerebral and brilliant. He is a genius in his speciality, criminal psychology, and Robbie Coltrane was a perfect fit. 
but when he was cast as Hagrid in the Harry Potter films, my son, a huge fan of the books and who quizzed me on all the casters to suitability, asked who Robbie Coltrane was. And I remember just replying, yep, brilliant. No one better to fill those shoes, apart from maybe the six foot seven, his body double, Martin Bayfield. He, of course, went on to become one of the best loved characters. He had presence and he held attention, a sad loss and taken too young. Yeah, he certainly was. Uh, even in some of his early stuff, I remember him in Krull as one of the bunch of the, um, I think Liam Neeson's in that as well as a leader of the group, but Coltrane had a, a real presence. But he turned up in things like he had a great role in uh, an early 90s film, The Adventures of Huck Finn. He's only a small part as this sort of con artist character, but he was amazing. He was one of those character actors um, that just, just re- you could rely on him. Larger than life, and he was. He was. Yeah. What about you, Darren? I mean, I'll confess here, this is the one I actually wanted to do, but Neil, Neil beat me to yeah, it. Sorry, um, sorry Darren. But the, the thing about it, particularly if you're like me, a teen in the uh, 80s, it, it's how big a deal the whole alternative comedy scene was in this country at that time. It was such a exciting you know vibrant new movement and especially when channel 4 came around and gave it a platform to wear and it it, re- it really was just sort of out of this world some of the stuff the things that i remember about coltrane was um in the comic strip movies there was one where he plays and, and get your head around this he plays a uh, charles bronson playing ken livingston in the uh, in a yes, film so, dramatization yeah, yeah, the gnc Yeah, the GLC, which is basically turns that whole sort of political drama into like a an action movie. It's it's so good. And then there's also another one from a um, can't actually remember what the film was called, but there's one scene in it where Robbie Coltrane is a cop and he's going down to um, make a drugs bust, and he's walking down this uh, harbor by the sea. Uh, with a guitar case and and two tribes go to war he's playing by Frankie goes to Hollywood and it's just this amazing scene it's absolutely absolutely uh, you know f- fantastic the film is the supergrass and that was Lime Regis Harbour amazing right okay yeah. okay and, and just one last thing I, I, I want to say on that is that we about um, Hagrid and Coltrane being the perfect person to play Hagrid. Another role which I think he was the perfect person to play uh, was in Henry V when he played Falstaff. Uh, and if you've ever... And, and yeah. Falstaff, yeah. Falstaff is actually not in Henry V. That scene is actually a flashback to uh, Henry IV Part 1 and Part 2. And if they had actually ever done a film version of Henry IV Part 1, and I really wish they would because it's an, an amazing action story. It would make an absolutely fantastic film. Robbie Coltrane as Falstaff would have been absolutely amazing in a full movie. And it's just one of those things that, you know, we, we never got. But just, just seeing him do a few lines of sort of, you know, of Falstaff dialogue is, is absolutely so, so wonderful. And he is something that, when you sit down and just look at the breadth of his work, it, you know, it was just a, just an amazing person of this country. Or well, UK, I should say. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I agree. What about you, Phil? Any impression on you, other than Harry Potter? 
Well, no, so I'm not, um, it's horrible to say this and it's got to keep my head down, but I'm not a big fan of Harry Potter. I never have been. I lo- I read the books. I love the books, but I never really got on with the films too well. But that might also be because my mother-in-law rates them as the greatest films of all time and makes all my all my nephews and my kids watch them every time we go over. So I've seen bits and pieces of them way too many times. Aside from that, I'm going to talk about Cracker because... I actually can't believe my parents let me watch that when it came out. I was 12 when that started. So I I was 12 to 15 years old when Cracker ran on TV. And I still vividly remember some of the um, incredibly brutal um, kind of storylines in there. His character in that was just indelibly marked on me. I think it might well have been the first time I ever saw a lead character in a TV series who was a bit of an asshole, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, yeah. It wasn't just you know, the brutality of the crimes and things that he was um, investigating. It was the fact that there was this incredibly likable but not likable sort of anti-hero character, and it was something that has always stuck with me uh, you, know, you know, from that young age on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And yeah. then these three series. Yeah. yeah. You Graham? Oh yeah, definitely Cracker. I could not believe it when I first started watching this because here was this really brilliant Sherlock Holmesy type person. Mm. But while Sherlock Holmes had his own drug demons, Cracker had that plus a million other problems he was dealing yeah. with and he was so unlikable and he was so sarcastic. I mean, the level of sarcasm is just so good and so cutting and he just inhabited the role. It was just so good. I remember my wife and I sitting and, and being glued to it. And you couldn't take your eyes off fits, could you? I don't know. what. It just, it's, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome to watch him. Wonderful, so Wonderful. good. Oh, I've got a confession to make. I've never actually seen an episode. Oh, what? It's probably yeah. available on uh, Channel Four somewhere. It's Channel Four, isn't it? It was ITV, isn't it? It was a sort of ITVX. It's counterpoint counter to a sort of um, Prime Suspect, and as okay. a police procedural, it's probably more accurate than Prime Suspect, which is a bit oh. weird. He had presence, and as we've all said, he held attention. Yeah, um, and it's a sad, sad loss. Okay, next up is another British talent who departed in 2022. The only film director on our list this year, Mike Hodges, 1932 to December 2022. And the experience of making the film was absolutely wonderful. A Bristol lad who grew up in the southwest, and like most of the people we've discussed so far, sort of drifted into the profession. In his case, directing after his national service and various accountancy jobs. In the 1960s, he started as a director on the current affairs TV show, World in Action, before making more commercial fare for ITV. However, it was his first film which put him on the filmmaker's map. It was the tough, no-nonsense gangster feature, Get Carter, where his documentary eye and some of his knowledge of Newcastle from his service days all came into play. It is a bleak study of early 70s Britain. After this, Mr Hodges went to America, where his unremitting tone was not understood by the critics, and probably some of the studios as well. And as a result, his films did not get wide releases. Pulp, for example, another film like Get Carter, starring Michael Caine, yet a more comic gangster take. 
it's difficult to track down. After being fired from Damien Omen 2 following those pesky creative differences, it looked like his film career might be over. However, after that came the movie that has proven to be his most successful, Flash Gordon. While Flash Gordon did okay on its initial release, over the years, it's built up a huge cult status. It's also so unlike anything else Mike Hodges ever made. It was fun and cheery. Sadly, that proved to be the high watermark, as again his films failed to find an audience, thanks mainly to distributors not believing in his vision. Try finding Black Rainbow or I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. He was a wonderful talent whose films are worthy of rediscovery. And the final irony is that the film he's now best remembered for is the one that is least representative of his output. Other films of note, The Terminal Man, 1974, Square in the Circle, 1984, and A Prayer for the Dying, 1987. Now, the reason I picked Mike Hodges as, as my choice for the year is because I did actually meet him and did get to spend a little bit of time with him. I became really impressed with his stories and his vision as he explained what he was trying to capture, certainly in Get Carter. What happened was, a few years ago, the Cheltenham Literature Festival tried a new type of event. It was to sort of meet the director. There were only a few people that were invited. There was food, drink, he was interviewed, and then he came and talked to the audience. And I had 20 minutes of his time. I wouldn't let him get away. We were talking <laughs> about... We know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> We spoke a lot about Get Carter, how Ian Henry was originally up for the lead role, but for various personal problems, he was then reduced to a secondary character. And that led to a lot of animosity between Michael Caine and Ian Henry that Mike Hodges had to deal with. And loads and loads of stories of Flash Gordon and his dealings with Dino De Laurentiis, which I probably couldn't repeat here in the fact that we might get sued. And we laughed in the end how a film the Queen considered one of her favourites to watch with her grandchildren has become a Christmas favourite over the years, unlike Get Carter, say. He was a true gentleman, really great person to, to spend time with, and he even signed my DVD of Get Carter. What a night. <laughs> Graham, your thoughts on Mike Hodges? Yeah. Prayer for um, the Dying is probably one of your favourites, I imagine. <laughs> no, thank you. What an awful legacy for the poor man. He, a great, great director, really hard-cutting, very documentary style uh, of direction, lots and lots of action and then quick cuts and that sort of thing. And yet the one he's remembered for is Flash Gordon. Gordon's alive in the Queen's soundtrack. Alive. Nothing. Nothing like any other film we ever made. And that's the one, yeah, that would be his legacy. Poor guy. Poor guy. Oh, get caught. He was too bad. <laughs> yeah, no, no, don't, don't get me wrong. He wasn't sort of down about it. He, what? You know, he was quite amused by the fact that this oh, film, that, been, that had been a great deal of fun to make. All oh, right, so he did get a bit of fun because he had a lot of problems with the American studio, studio system, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the story behind. The Damien firing is also yeah. fascinating. He was very British. He was very straightforward. And, you know, he called a spade a spade. And in filmmaking circles, you can't always do that. Yep. You have to call it a shovel. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Phil. Um, I will admit that I have only seen Get Carter and Flash Gordon. I have not seen any of the other films you've referenced. 
Get Carter, I think, is awesome. And The Flash has its charms. Never somebody who has kind of always popped up on my radar. So perhaps I need to watch a few more films. If you can find them, of course. They are, some of them are difficult to track down and different cats. What about what about you, Darren? I mean, the the fact is that he um, he directed two of my favourite films, Get Carter, which for me one of the best British movies, regardless of genre, that's ever been made, and Flash Gordon, which I absolutely love. It's it, it's a film that I think is even more fun when you get to be an adult because you see all the little uh, sneaky in jokes about sort of steroids and SMN and stuff like that. How much of that was his vision, who knows. But I think there is no other film that has the look of um, of Flash Gordon, except for maybe something like Barbarella. Yeah, I'm going to echo the uh, what um, what Darren said. I think um, Get Carter's fantastic, and I need to watch it again. I haven't watched it for years. I think this is uh, probably a good time to, to do that. Obviously, Flash Gordon I've seen repeatedly. But I don't know much about this rest of his stuff. If we, If anybody finds any... On streaming, let me know. Well, Graham, I'll hand over to you for the Terminal Man. Um, I've I've not seen the Terminal Man. Um, I thought you had the way you no, reacted. No, 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 not me. You just read no. the Crichton book, is that? I've read the Crichton book, yeah, and I'm really and I didn't realise that Mike Hodges had made it. So I've written down here in front of me, Pulp by Mike Hodges to investigate, and the Terminal Man. The Terminal Man is quite a bleak book, and I'd like to see it's a bleak how film. Somebody with Hodge's talent for bleakness could do the Terminal Man, because I still reckon that Michael Crichton's, apart from the obvious Jurassic Park, I don't think anybody's really, really captured some of his uh, better and more dark work. So yeah, very underrated director and a sad loss, but uh, again, a really nice guy. And for our final choice, we have an American actor who left us way too soon. Ray Liotta, 1954 to May 2022. Basically, it said, sorry, I can't f-ing be there. <laughs> what the f***? What the f***? As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Those words from the opening of Goodfellas are forever associated with Ray Liotta. Although in truth, he always wanted to be an actor, villains were a 40 of his, and yet he preferred playing good guys. Born in New Jersey and adopted at six months old into a very stable and actively democratic supporting household, he had a very uneventful childhood. Ray always believed he was of Italian heritage. However, later in life, when he tracked down his real parents, he found out his background was actually Scottish. After college, he did stage and TV work, including the role of Sasha in a short-lived prequel TV series of Casablanca, where Rick was played by David Soule. His big break and his first award nomination came for Jonathan Demme's Something Wild in 1986. He plays Melanie Griffith's ex-con husband, and from the moment he appears on screen, what started as a comedy becomes something much, much darker. The final confrontation between him and Jeff Daniels is nothing short of terrifying. After that, the 80s and early 90s were really good to him. Before starring in Goodfellas, Mr. Liotta played one of his favourite roles as Shoeless Joe Jackson in Fearless Dreams. Then came great performances in films that never really found their audiences, like Unlawful Entry in 1992 and No Escape in 1994. However, Mr. Liotta was an actor you could never write off, 
and every now and then he boosted a film or TV series. A memorable performance being on ER is definitely worth checking out. It is perhaps fitting that one of the last of his great performances was released shortly after his untimely death, playing the father in the powerful Apple TV series Blackbird. A mercurial actor who has gone far too early, I'm sure had many more great performances to give us. Other knit films of note are Karina Karina in 1994, Copland in 1997, Hannibal in 2001 and Killing Them Softly in 2012. For me personally, when I think of Ray Liotta, the image that always comes to mind is that first shot of him sat on the car in Goodfellas. It's just an amazing looking scene. He has so much presence in that moment and he exudes everything about the character he's playing. Henry Hill's confidence, his arrogance, him being so relaxed in the life he's made up for himself, absolutely looking charismatic and cool. And it goes on from there, frankly, just to steal the entire movie. You know, when you consider that he was in a film with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, and he still remains the top guy in this film, it's absolutely stunning. It's just an amazing role that he's playing. The thing about him is, in so many films, he played gangsters and villains. And and when there weren't that variety, they were still of the um, arsehole variety so for example um, in Hannibal uh, or in, in Marriage Story where he plays a real hard-ass um, lawyer and any time that he came into a film or a TV show he absolutely elevated one even if he just came on for one scene you know it was absolutely sort of you know so wonderful but there's a performance that I really really like that I think showed a different side to him and it was where he played a struggling single father in Karina Karina. And there was just something just so nice about his performance in that film. Uh, you know, and just just an ama- amazing sort of like, you know, charismatic actor. The thing about him, though, when I sort of look back, looking at all his work, is when I watched him in Goodfellas, you know, he, he, I mean, he's totally, the entire movie is about him. He's, he's in virtually every scene and, you know, and he narrates it and everything. After that, you'd think that he would just be like a leading man constantly. Mm. And, when you, and when I think back, it, that didn't seem to happen. He seemed to be more in, in ensemble pieces or, or in smaller roles. Like, you know, there, there weren't that many films where he was like the, um, you know, the, the, the top you know, lead, leading man as such. One thing I was reading up on this, Martin Scorsese says, he doesn't know why he never worked with him again. And and he and, and he really regrets that he never did that. He, he possibly should have been a bigger leading man than he actually was, and and I'm not sure why that wasn't. I think the reason why he had that run of films like Unlawful Entry, Karina Karina, which is I haven't seen, is on my list to to see. And after what you said, I really want to see it now. And No Escape, they're all just failed at the box office. And when you get a run like that, that really sort of hits it hard, I think, for you. I mean, I could never get over him in Something Wild. Everything for me was measured to that because it scared the crap out of me the first time I saw that film. You know, you've got <laughs> Jeff Bridges and Melanie Griffiths in this film that's funny, a little bit kinky, all of this sort of stuff. And then part the way through the film, he wanders in and you you know it's going to take a turn to something else. But he, you just can't work out how dark this film's going to go. What about you, Phil? 
Yeah, I mean, so I loved Ray Liotta and and those films that you mentioned as um, failures were big for me because that was when I was a teenager and or just sort of around that sort of age. I think Unlawful Entry probably came out on VHS when I was 12 or 13. So I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the box office at those ages. It was just what came into the VHS store. So Unlawful Entry, I love that film probably had nothing to do with Madeline Stowe and my age, but you know, <laughs> no, no Escape and Korean Your Queen. Honor. Those, yeah. Yeah, those, those were films that you know, we would rent from the VHS store and watch on a Friday night. That was kind of our routine. We all know how much I love Scorsese films and Goodfellas. Copland, I absolutely adore. I think that's a great film. Yeah. Uh, the only one we haven't mentioned which I love is a film called Narc, where he plays alongside Jason Patrick, I think he is. I think he's a corrupt cop. It is a great film, really, really, really good film. He was more of a character actor, but again, it was, you know, as Darren said, he was on the arsehole side of the fence in terms of the characters. I've always loved Ray Liotta. His box office failures were my VHS Friday evenings. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Neil? Same, really. I don't know much about the other films. I haven't seen Copland. And, um, Have you seen Something and Wild? I haven't, no. I, no these films I need down. to catch up on. I really yeah. should. I really have to. Um, there's a guy on uh, Twitter who I follow who occasionally puts on um, clips from films, just short clips, and there's this wonderful one from Goodfellas where he's uh, drives his car into the up to the, dri- the drive and his... Uh, his wife is just, has got a marking on her face and uh, he waits. He waits until she goes out of the car and he steps out of the car, takes the gun out of the, of, the, uh, of the car, puts it in his belt, walks across the road and just deals with these three people. And he just so calm, so calm, and then bang, he suddenly flips. And it's really quite sort of shocking. And it's an incredible moment. It's just one tiny little clip of his career. He was a scary man when he wanted to be, wasn't he? Yeah. Very yeah. scary. But I really need to catch up with a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, I I, I just want to echo uh, what Neil said. It, he was one of those character actors who could play cultivated charm, but he's a psychopath. Mm. Yes. <laughs> On the surface, it's one thing, but you, as of the audience, you're watching it going, Oh no, they've just triggered him. He's going to go completely bonkers. There's not, it's going to be a lot of blood coming up in the next five minutes. Yeah, just that, that level of acting talent where you can appear to be one thing, but yet the audience know exactly what's going to happen next. Just great, great acting. And I've got, right, I've written down Karina, Karina, and something wild. Thanks, Jeff. Another two. We're up to six films. Recommended on the list. Yeah. To find me on this sad subject, a brief roll call on just some of the other famous names who passed in 2022. Neil. Peter Bogdanovich. In the 60s and 70s, Peter Bogdanovich made a huge impact as a film critic, film historian, and director. Targets, The Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon are a testament to his talent. Douglas Trumbull a visionary special effects artist. Without him, 2001, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Blade Runner would not have been able to realise their amazing worlds. 
He also directed the cult classic Silent Running. Ivan Reitman, responsible for some of the biggest comedy hits of the 1980s, Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Stripes and Twins. It's fair to say he was the comedy director and producer of that decade. William Hurt. Staying in the 1980s, William Hurt had a remarkable run of highly acclaimed movies. Body Heat, The Big Chill, Gorky Park, Kiss of the Spider Woman and Broadcast News. Nominated three years running for Best Actor and winning for Kiss of the Spider Woman. Vangelis, composer who won an Oscar for the inspirational Chariots of Fire, which almost wasn't used for the film, he created equally memorable scores for Missing in 1982, Blade Runner, also 1982, and 1492, The Conquest of Paradise, 1992. A musical genius. James Kahn. He exploded onto our screens in The Godfather in all senses of that word and went on to own the 70s with such movies as Rollerball, Brian's Song, Freebie and the Bean and The Gambler. Over the next couple of decades, he wasn't as prolific but was amazing in Thief and Misery, a wonderful on-screen persona. David Warner, a very hard-working British actor who seemed to be in just about everything over the years. From the various incarnations of Star Trek, where he played a, a Cardassian, a Klingon and a human, to fan favourites such as Time After Time, Straw Dogs, Time Bandits, Titanic and The Omen, with one of the best death scenes ever seen in a movie. In total, he made 226 appearances on TV and film, an incredible achievement for an incredible talent. Talking of Star Trek... In 2022, we lost Nichelle Nichols, another of the original crew gone to the great beyond. As a character of horror, she created a landmark character, one where her colour was not mentioned. Indeed, as Dr. Martin Luther King told her after the first series, you are reflecting what we are fighting for. Wolfgang Peterson, a German director who found international fame after the successful TV series Das Boot. Wolfgang directed some of the more interesting action thrillers in Hollywood, including In the Line of Fire, Air Force One, The Perfect Storm and the underrated Troy. Louise Fletcher, Oscar winner for playing one of the most memorable villains in film history, Nurse Ratched, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Her tightly controlled performance counterbalanced perfectly with Jack Nicholson's larger-than-life character in that memorable film. After that, Louise drifted into horror and science fiction films, giving great performances in films like Brainstorm and Strange Invaders. Kirstie Alley. Forgetting her rather dubious politics, Kirstie Alley will be best remembered for her role of Rebecca Howe in the wonderful TV series Cheers. However, she also found success in the cinema with roles from Star Trek II and the very successful Look Who's Talking series. Angela Lansbury. Last but certainly not least the amazing talent that was Angela Lansbury. Most people will remember her from TV series Murder, She Wrote. And given that my wife watches this show on loop at the weekends, I certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) However, her film career started way back in the 1940s with Gaslight and National Velvet. Angela was not afraid to take on strong characters on stage in Sweeney Todd and on screen in The Manchurian Candidate. Her final screen appearance was in last year's Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. 
and many others too numerous to mention here. To everyone, we say thank you for entertaining and educating us. We end part one of our show after that sad reflection. In the next show, we'll talk about our alternative movie awards for 2022 and what the At The Flicks team are most looking forward to seeing in 2023. Bye for now. now.